If you've grown up in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard or even read aloud something called the Nicene Creed. And if you know the Nicene Creed, then you probably, uh, some of you could say this section that I'm about to read for you uh, from memory. You don't have to read it aloud with me this morning, but if you're feeling very energetic, you're welcome to do so. But there's a part in the Nicene Creed, it's one of the the creeds, one of the statements of faith that many churches, especially churches like ours, tend to uh, uh, ascribe to and use as a guidepost for what it is we believe. And one of the sections in the Nicene Creed goes like this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And there's a word in there that we've probably often heard in church or even read in Scripture, and we might have some idea of what that word means, and yet we don't quite know for certain, and that word is begotten. You see, since the day I was born, people have told me that I look a lot like my father. I mean, so much so to the point that when I started here at this church, there's a family, um, and the father of that family graduated with my dad, and before he even knew my name, when I met him, he looked at me and said, are you Mike Hungate's son? And truthfully, I'm not so sure. I've never seen so much of the resemblance. I think maybe there's a little bit there, but I can appreciate the fact that I see myself differently than you see me. So um, I'm going to put a picture up, and you can decide for yourself how much you think I look like my dad. So that's my dad and my brother and I. And like I said, from the time I was born, people have not stopped telling me how much I look like my father. One of the first things we find ourselves doing, actually— after someone has a child is noting how alike their features are to those of their parents. You might hear phrases like a chip off the old block, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or in my case, people referred to me as my father's mini-me. And now back to that word begotten, it would be appropriate then when we're thinking about what that word means to say that I am begotten of my parents. That is to say, I was born of them. I possess within me the same kind of genetic material that they do. But if my parents had instead decided, instead of having a child, that they would rather create a statue that looked exactly like I look, we would not then say that that statue was my parents' child. We would not then say that that statue was begotten of God. It might be a creation of my parents, but it certainly would not be correct to refer to it as their begotten. And in the culture in which we live, uh, the statement, the premise for what we are going to talk about this morning might be an uncomfortable one, but it's one that must be said. We are not children of God simply because we are created in God's image. But in fact, there's more to what it means to be a child of God simply than being created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts it this way. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, a man makes a wireless set, or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say, a statue. 
if he is clever enough carver, he may even make a statue which looks very much like a man indeed. But of course it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. A statue has the shape of man but is not alive. In the same way, man has the shape or likeness of God, but he has not got the kind of life God has, and that is precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculpture's sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going round that's the shop that someday some of us are going to come to life. That life that Lewis refers to here is the very life of God inside of us, that which makes us into sons and daughters of God. And in order to be children of God, the life of God, that is his Holy Spirit, must come inside of us and save us not only by our trusting in Christ, but by making us new through the life that can come only from God. This is the type of mistake that we oftentimes fall prey to in the 21st century North American church, is that we fall short of the message of the gospel by equating church attendance or good things that we do or the way we treat people as equal to our salvation. And I'm here this morning in the words of the late vicar, which is just a, a fancy word for pastor, named John Barrage in Everton. And as on his headstone he had inscribed, no salvation without new birth. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, no salvation without new birth. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn with me to John chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. You can go ahead and look on the screen. We're going to be in verses 1 through 18 this morning. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So in this passage of what is maybe one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, because of that verse 16 that we all know by heart and love, 
we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night to talk with him. And based off of how Nicodemus addresses Jesus, we can guess uh, that Nicodemus is clearly beginning to at least wonder about Jesus. He might not quite believe in Jesus yet. He might not quite have placed his trust in the Lord yet. But Nicodemus certainly sees that God is doing something through this man, Jesus. And for Nicodemus to even be speaking to Jesus at this point is dangerous. You see, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the religious elite class that would have ascribed very, very, um, very religiously, very conservatively to the principles and doctrines of the Jewish faith. And so for Nicodemus to be talking to Jesus was actually quite dangerous for him. That might be why he had to come to Jesus at nighttime, because if Nicodemus's Pharisee friends knew where he was, he would certainly be ridiculed, possibly even punished or executed. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and begins to ask him about the kingdom of God, Jesus responds to him in a very curious way. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's worth noting that when Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God, he's not just talking about your eternity in heaven, although that's part of it, but actually that throughout the Gospels, the phrase the kingdom of God is used to refer to God's plan for the world that includes both Christ and his saving sacrifice, as well as God's redemptive plan for humanity that brings us ever closer to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. The kingdom of God is a topic that many of you are probably quite familiar with now because of the Revelation study that we did this past spring. And Nicodemus, he's understandably quite confused. He makes the mistake of thinking that Jesus is referring to a human birth, which I think uh, we have to cut Nicodemus a little bit of slack. If you had never uh, grown up with any kind of, of Christian upbringing, or if you were someone who was here this morning who didn't know the Lord, and I said to you, there's no salvation unless you are born a second time, you might respond quite like Nicodemus responds and says, how can that be? How is it possible for someone to be born a second time? And Nicodemus makes the mistake that we often might make reading this passage and thinking that Jesus is referring to a human birth. But Jesus answers Nicodemus' questions this way. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And so we see Jesus here talking about water and spirit, and he's not necessarily referring to the sacrament of baptism like might be uh, easy for us to read into this passage. But what he's actually doing is using a couple of different ways to explain to Nicodemus the same idea, and that is when you are born again, you must have the Holy Spirit entering inside of you. Just like our C.S. Lewis quote from earlier, Jesus tells us that flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. And so just because we are born in God's image in our flesh, right, in the image and likeness of God, we are actually not yet called children of God unless we have that life of Christ inside of us, that salvation from the Lord that comes only through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so if we want to have the Spirit of God inside of us, then we must be born of the Spirit and not simply think that our status as beings created in the image of God is enough for our salvation. Unfortunately, because of sin, we are no longer by default 
children, sons, and daughters of God. We are still created in God's image, but the life of God has been broken away from us as a result of sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And one of the things that I worry about regularly, and I say this to you, um, being completely transparent as one of your pastors, is one of the things that I worry about regularly is that there are some of you who might think that because you attend church or because you're a good person, you are counted among the children of God. I fear in today's age, especially for North American Christians, that we will walk through life thinking that we are born again simply because we've attended church our whole life and I said the songs that I, or I sang the songs I had to sing in Sunday school and I said the words that I was supposed to say in confirmation and then I did college ministry for a while and I raised my kids in the church and I think that that's enough for my salvation and my worry is that someday you're going to get to where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 on the day of reckoning there will be people who look to the Lord and say Lord, Lord and he will say I never even knew you. I hope you will join me in saying that our goal here as believers in Jesus Christ, as CPUMC and whatever this church becomes as we step forward in the future, that our goal should not be just to make churchgoers, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to make born again disciples. I love you enough to tell you that I am not interested in being here just so you can come to church. I want to be here for you so that you might be disciples and that we together might go and make born-again disciples. We're not called as Christians to make people go to church. We're called as Christians to spread the gospel. And that message of the gospel includes this fact that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, there is no salvation without rebirth. And so when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he should not be surprised by the saying, you must be born again, our English Bibles don't actually do that phrase justice because they translate the word you as a singular. But when Jesus says you, he's actually using a plural, like a, like a y'all if we were from the south. He's referring to you all, to plural. And he says, you all must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. The extension of the Spirit of God towards those who need rebirth is not isolated here in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. That's actually a command that Jesus is extending towards you and towards me. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and maybe like other Pharisees, he had begun to think that because of his religious devotion, he had done enough to be saved and to be called a child of God. I don't think I need to go any farther in that regard, referring to Nicodemus and comparing him maybe to people even like myself. People who have been in church long enough to think, oh, I know, I've heard John 3.16 before, Pastor, I can just tune out this morning, I don't need to listen to you. But maybe you don't relate to Nicodemus. Maybe you relate to someone in the next chapter of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4. You may have heard the story of the Samaritan woman at the well See, this woman was an outcast. She had uh, been married five times and then was living with someone who was not her husband. And in her culture, the only way to be divorced was if the man divorced the woman. And so there had been five separate men who had brought her publicly before the town and said, she is not good enough for me for whatever reason, and then left her. And so in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, by herself, which would be completely uncommon for people of her culture, she goes out to the well, and thankfully for her, she meets Jesus. And Jesus looks at this outcasted, broken, sinful woman, and he offers her living water. The, the same imagery for the Spirit of God entering into her that he uses with Nicodemus here in John chapter 3 when he says you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. 
he looks at this person who struggled with sin. He looks at this person who feels left out and outcasted by her society. He looks at this person who feels like you might feel in your everyday life, like nobody wants you, like you're not good enough for the people around you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, whatever it might be. He looks both at the Pharisee who thinks that he's too good and the woman who knows that she's not good enough. And he freely extends the offer of his spirit to enter inside of them to make them sons and daughters of God. So whether you're someone who thinks that you're a great person or someone who's outcasted by others and plagued by sin and brokenness, the offer of new life by the power of God's Holy Spirit is on the table for you. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John in verses 12 and 13, we see a better explanation of this concept that just because we are born in the likeness of God does not mean that we are yet children of God. And that might sound scary, but I hope that you might be reassured by this passage that we are about to read in John chapter 1. This is verses 12 and 13. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You, friends, have the right, not just the permission, not just the begrudging respect. You have the right to be called a child of God if you are in Christ. That offer is extended to you freely. And so maybe you need to take time today to allow the Holy Spirit into your heart, to trust in what God has done for you through Jesus Christ and allow him in. For it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. If you are someone this morning who understands, who has been searching, knowing that something needs to change, Maybe this is your first weekend in church or watching church online, or maybe you've been in the church for longer than I've been alive. The promise is available for you this morning that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. And we can praise God that he loves us, as Pastor Mike Morgan would say, that he loves us the way that we are, but he loves us so much that he will not leave us the way that we are. And so maybe you're someone who thinks that you have or knows that you have been born again, or you're someone who's interested in what that means, and you're asking yourself, how do I know that I'm born again? What happens after I'm born again? After I accept Christ and put my trust in his saving grace, after I allow the Holy Spirit to come into me and to make me a new creation, to become a child of God, what does that mean? I want to l- read for you a little bit from the conversion story of two men who are very important to the Methodist denomination. Those men are John and Charles Wesley. This is from the Christian History Institute, and it's talking about when they were reborn, when they were born again of the Holy Spirit. The answer to this question came shortly after his, that is John's, return from America. Both he and Charles were influenced by Moravian friends who bore witness to salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Charles Wesley was the first of the two to be justified by faith, And on Whit Sunday, May 21st, 1738, he experienced Pentecost. He wrote in his journal that the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. The prolific hymnist eventually, he wrote six to seven thousand hymns, wrote a hymn to commemorate his day of salvation. Three days later, on May 24th, 1738, John's seeking for the grace of God ended in a meeting house on Aldersgate Street in London. 
he wrote in his journal that now famous account of his conversion. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. John immediately shared the good news with Charles. Charles wrote that towards ten, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends and declared, I believe. We sang the hymn with great joy and parted with prayer. Until their conversions, the Wesleys had what John described as a fair summer religion. They were both ordained, they both preached, taught, wrote, composed hymns, and even gave themselves to missionary work, all to no avail. They had not Christ, or rather Christ did not have them. They lived by good works, but not by faith. The first principle this morning, how do we know that we are born again, is we trust in Christ alone and not in works. These people, John and Charles Wesley, had been pastors and missionaries. They had just returned from a missionary journey to the New World and the Americas. They had done the church things. They were ordained in the Church of England. They taught, they wrote sermons, they wrote hymns. And yet for the whole time, as John said, they had a fair summer religion, believing that they could simply be good enough in order to earn the salvation that Christ gives freely only through the grace of himself. So our first principle this morning, you can go ahead and put that up on the screen, Levi, for how do we know that we're born again is to trust in Christ alone and not in works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that none can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. To be born again, we must recognize that this rebirth, this being born again of the Spirit that Jesus talks about comes purely by the grace of God and not by our own works. Like a child being born, the work that is done in the rebirth of the Spirit is done by the one who's doing the birthing and not by the child. Moms, can I get an amen? There is nothing that you can do in order to bring about your rebirth. The work in that process is done by the one who's doing the birthing namely our Lord and God. Our works, they should come as a result of our salvation and rebirth in Christ. They are not the cause of them. Jesus implies this very truth to Nicodemus when he says that the Son of Man, which is um, a, a phrase from the book of Daniel that Jesus uses to describe himself, he says the Son of Man must be lifted up like Moses lifted up the bronze snake. And Jesus references here this very obscure little passage of Scripture in Numbers 21 when Moses is leading the Israelites, God's people, through the wilderness and they begin to sin and they begin to distrust God and distrust Moses, the leader that God had appointed for them. And so they began to turn away and worship idols. They began to, to not trust in God's plan to save them and to lead them through the wilderness. And so God sent a, a brood of vipers. He sent a bunch of venomous snakes, and the Israelites began to be bit by these venomous snakes. And as they were laying on the ground, suffering from the punishment of their sin, God in his grace and mercy said to Moses, place this bronze eagle upon a staff and lift it up to the sky. And anyone who turns their head from the idols and looks towards the staff of God will be healed. And Jesus is drawing this beautiful parallel between that story and between our rebirth in Christ. That the venom of sin that is coursing through our veins can so easily be healed from us. Not by any lifting of our own finger, 
God didn't say to the Israelites, you have to get up and suffer through that venom yourself and then do enough good stuff in order for me to save you. He says simply, look towards me and salvation and healing will come. And that same message that Moses gives to the Israelites in Numbers 21 is given to Nicodemus and to us here this morning. That because Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross, we are now able to be healed from that venom called sin that is within us, not by our own power, but simply by looking to God. The second way to know if we're born again is to be awakened to the realities of the kingdom of God. Tim Keller says that all living things sense their environment. They sense something about what's in the environment, even the simplest living things. And a baby being born immediately sees for the first time, hears really almost for the first time, at least when they are brought out into the world, they are brought into a world of amazing sensations. One of the things that all the great theologians of the soul over the years have observed is that to cross from death to life, to be born again, means that suddenly spiritual realities that you could not sense before, that were either invisible to you, or maybe you'd say inaudible to you, suddenly you can sense them because you are given a new sensibility. In Colossians 2, it says that while we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins. And so that very same spirit that rose God from the dead, that rose Christ from the dead, will eventually heal the entire world by bringing the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth together. And that very same spirit of God that is going to do that by the power of the Son, Jesus Christ, is actually available to you if you are born again within your own heart. That the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead and will bring the new heaven and the new earth together is actually within inside of you if you are a believer in Christ. And that is part of what it means to be born again. And it has to change the way you think about and see and understand the world. The way that we see people, the way that we treat people, the way that we understand the things going on around us, the way that we dive into our scriptures has to change. Because one of the blessings of being reborn is now that we no longer have to look at the world just in its sinfulness and its brokenness. And we don't have to look at the people around us just in the bad things that they do and the ways that they fall short of our expectations. But because of the Spirit of God living inside of us, we can look at them and see the healing and redemptive power of Christ in them that we can look at broken people just like ourselves and see them not for their brokenness, but for what Christ can do through them. We can also see that the world is full of God's spirit as he continues to change this world into the coming glory. As Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the spirit. And yet the grace of God is that for those who are born again by the spirit of God, part of the kingdom of God actually enters inside of them. Then the final one this morning, for how do we know if we have been born again is the affections of our hearts are changed. John 3.16, the one from this passage that many of you probably thought, oh, I at least know that one, and me too, before today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Those who are born again are said to have had their hearts warmed much like John Wesley. And one of the best testimonies for this rebirth, this having the affections of the heart changed, was spoken to me at a meeting this week, a discipleship meeting that I have with some of our students. 
one of our students named McKenna said something along these lines to me. When we talk about our sins being forgiven, all I can think about is the picture of the crucifixion and Jesus dying for me, and it makes me speechless. The affections of a heart that have been changed. McKenna, many of our other students, they're teenagers. They're the kind of people that are supposed to have their hearts centered on things that are not Christ. When we stereotype people in our own heads and we think about the people who at the very least should not be pursuing the Lord or thinking about what God would want for them, maybe teenagers or young adults, people my age, are the first that come to mind. And yet, the ones, for the ones who have been reborn, their hearts are so affected by what Christ has done for them that their lives are changing. The affections of their hearts are changed. And when the affections of our hearts are changed, the actions of our lives will inevitably follow. So if you've been born again by the power of the Spirit, your life is changed because your heart begins to reflect God's heart. Your actions, your words, the way you see people begin to reflect God as well. When is the last time as you considered what it was that Christ has done for you that you were so moved by that same Spirit of God inside your own heart that you were left speechless? And so now this morning, if you're here today and you're ready to invite the Spirit of God into your heart, we're going to make some space for you to do that right now. Whether you're in your seat here, whether after I move this pulpit out of the way, you come up to the kneeling rail before the cross, whatever it is that you need to do, if you haven't already, to invite the Spirit of the living God inside of your heart, to no longer trust in your own good works and your own goodness and your own faithfulness for the salvation that comes through grace alone in Christ excuse me, through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That salvation and the rebirth of God's Holy Spirit is not something that you have to live up to or be good enough for, but is actually offered to each and every one of us. And so we're going to make space this morning for that, or for any kind of prayer or whatever it is that you might need within your own heart connect with the Spirit of God. And so if that's you this morning, as soon as this prayer is finished, this space is for you, this space is for you. And if that's not for you this morning, if you are reborn, if you are someone who is still working towards that and haven't quite considered what it might mean in your life to be reborn, then we love you and God bless you and your space for fellowship is out there. But this morning as we close in prayer, there will be no benediction there will be none of the uh, ending things that we normally do but we're going to invite the holy spirit into this place we invite you to stay if you need and if you don't if you're ready for fellowship then we invite you to to join together in the center would you please pray with me Lord God, we pray this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, our lives would be changed, that we would no longer live as people who are simply churchgoers, God, but we would be transformed into disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us not be content any longer to trust in our own goodness or our own works for salvation, but to accept the free gift of grace that you offer us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning for the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead to bring rebirth, God, to hearts this morning that need to be made alive in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the blessing that it is to be called sons and daughters of God, that that offer is extended to us freely, that we might reach out and take it. So this morning, Lord, help us to reach out and take it. 
Help us to trust in the power of your Holy Spirit to save. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that he was lifted up for us on a cross and crucified, that he rose again on the third day, that we might not live in sin and death any longer, but the same kingdom of God, who is even now restoring this world as it comes closer to its glory, is living with inside of our hearts. We thank you, Jesus, and we invite you into this room this morning. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.